Well, everyone in this room has offended somebody at one point or another. And you've probably been on the recipient side of having been offended by other people. Now, ideally, if I offend you, I come to you, I confess my sins, and you forgive me. If you, if you have offended me, you come to me, you confess your sin, and I forgive you. And that's the way it's supposed to work. But we know it doesn't always work that way. So the subject of forgiveness is very complicated. It's not simple. And it gets really messy. I began a series on the first Sunday of the month, which will continue every first Sunday. The first message was back on June, first Sunday of June, on divine forgiveness. My message today is therapeutic forgiveness. Is it biblical? If you would ask most Christians, they would probably say, yeah, that's, that, that sounds right to me. So we're going to take a look at that. Now, we do know that as Christians, we are commanded to be a forgiving people as we seek to model the forgiveness that God has granted us in Jesus Christ. And I've surveyed a lot of journals. I, I have a program, Bible study program, that gives me access to literally hundreds and hundreds of theological journals and, and subjects. So I could do a subject search or journal search, whatever. And I, I'd have to tell you, even in reading literature on the internet on forgiveness, that I would not recommend much of what has been written on this subject. Especially when it comes to the subject of therapeutic forgiveness. But before we launch into that idea, I'm going to take a little time to review the first message. I'm going to do it quickly. You have the outline of the major points right there on your outline. We saw that man's greatest need is for forgiveness, right? Blessed are those whose sins are forgiven. We need forgiveness because we're sinners by nature. In sin, David said, did my mother conceive me? We have this terrible thing residing within us called the sin nature. But we're also sinners by choice. We, we sin willfully. We sin deliberately. And that's the human condition. We're sinners by nature and we're sinners by choice. And we cannot extricate ourselves from that condition. It took the grace of God. We know from Scripture only Jesus was free of sin by nature and free of sin by choice. 1 John 3, 5 says, We know that he was manifested. That means he became man to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. That's a very emphatic statement in in, in the text. If he had sinned by nature, or if he sinned deliberately, willingly, then he could not be the perfect offering for our sins. Deuteronomy 17, 1 says, You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep which has a blemish or a defect, for that is a detestable thing to God. We know from 1 Peter 1, 18, he says that we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct or way of life received by tradition from your fathers, referring back to the Israelites, 
but with the precious blood of Christ. And then he adds, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, perfectly free from sin. We know that God sent his only begotten son into the world to save us because God is forgiving by nature. That's a little tough thing for us to do, but God is by his very nature always willing to grant forgiveness. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed by before him, Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. So God is willing to forgive, but it says that he will by no means clear the guilty. And that word nakah, clear in the Hebrew, means to acquit or to, to, to find innocent. God simply cannot declare not guilty those people who are in fact guilty. Why? Because he is a holy and a just God. Well, sin is a big barrier between man and God. Divine forgiveness is the removal of sins as a barrier between the sinner and God. We quoted from Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, that's an infinite direction, as far as the east is from the west, so hath he removed our transgressions from us. And then Hebrews 10, 16 reminds us, this is the covenant that I will make with them in those days saith the Lord, I will put my law into their hearts and in their minds will I write them and their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Now we, we are not like God. We hold on to offenses. We remember offenses. Sometimes we can keep a logbook of offenses. We, we can bring them back up to people at the, the, at the appropriate time. But God is not like that with us and our sins. Now that's verse in scripture Speaking of Israel under the Old Covenant, their daily sacrifices not only reminded the people of their sin, it served to testify that God remembered their sins as well. That God, well, God didn't have a blind eye toward their sins. So that was a promise that in the future, when he enacts the new covenant with Israel, those sins will be remembered no more. Now, under the new covenant, as we enter into it by faith in Christ, That's true of every believer, whether he's Jewish or Gentile. God does not remember our sins. That promise applies to us. Under the spiritual provision of forgiveness, as outlined in the New Covenant, he doesn't hold our sins against us anymore. And that's that's freedom, right? Jesus sets you free, you're free indeed. But God forgives, and we, I emphasize this point, God forgives only those who turn to him in repentance and who put their trust in him. God does not grant unconditional forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32, Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And here's the, here's the, the, the key phrase. As God in Christ forgave you. That that means in this manner. You forgive in this manner. As God forgave you. The parallel to that would be in the book of Colossians 3.13. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any. 
Not, that just happens in human relationships. Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. So that's, that's the pattern for forgiveness. Roy Zuck talked about repentance. He says it's included in believing. Faith and repentance are like two sides of a coin. Genuine faith includes repentance, and genuine repentance includes faith. The Greek word metanoia means to change one's mind. But to change one's mind about what? About sin, about one's adequacy to save himself, which is what most people think. They're good a lot way they're bad. About Christ is the only way of salvation, the only one who can make a person righteous. And how does he do that? By faith, right? That's the doctrine of justification, imputed righteousness. When you put your faith in Christ, you could be the vilest of sinners as we sang. He imputes to you a righteousness that you do not have, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's credited to your account. And that's the best transaction you can ever have. Now, when people sin against you personally, you've all experienced that, right? When people sin against you personally and they cause a break in that relationship, they must admit their sin. They must change their mind about their sin. That's what it means to confess it, admit it. And that becomes the basis for reconciliation in the relationship. If they sin against the church, the same holds true. Now, I'm going to have a lot more to say about this as we continue this discussion. But 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. A minister was walking down a street when he noticed a group of boys standing around a dog, and he was concerned for the dog's safety, so he walked over and he asked them what they were doing, and one, one boy replied, well, this is an old stray, and we all want it. So we decided that whoever told the biggest lie would, would get it. You boys shouldn't have a contest telling lies, said the minister. Don't you know that lying is a sin? Why, when I was your age, I never told a lie. So there was silence for about a minute, and then just as the minister thought that he had gotten through to him, one boy gave a deep sigh and said, all right, he wins. <laughs> Give him the dog. Well, First John says in verse 9, 1, if we confess our sins, that's homo legato means to say the same thing, to admit. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that is a conditional statement. The if is the subjunctive mood of probability. And it means that we may not confess our sins. If we confess our sins, God will do so. But we may not confess our sins, and God will not grant forgiveness for that sin. Confession, I said, means to say the same thing. And so to agree in one statement with, to acknowledge, to admit the truth of. Now the standard of truth whereby we judge a person's actions to be sinful or not is not our own opinions, right? It's the word of God. So that's what we have to go to. Now as I talk about this, and in the future in particular, I'm not talking about every little 
little offense that somebody you know, may do to you. The Bible says that it's the glory of a man, Psalm, Proverbs 19.11, to overlook an offense. So there are things we just don't make a big issue out of. We're willing to overlook it. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.8 that love covers a what? A multitude of sins. But not every sin can be just dismissed like that. There are grave sins. There are serious sins that we just can't, can't have a blind eye to and say, oh, I'll forgive and forget. No, they have to be dealt with biblically. So going back to the definition of forgiveness that I gave you before, divine forgiveness is the removal of sins as a barrier between the sinner and God. That's on a judicial level, which means that it reconciles the sinner to God because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to him. But there's something else that we should add to it. Biblical forgiveness does not always remove the consequences of sin, right? We know that's true. A person can commit a crime, go to court, be sentenced in court, maybe as a Christian judge, and he could express all the sorrow that he wants to express and truly mean it, and the judge could say, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, life without parole. Does not remove the consequences of sin all the time. We saw that in the scripture reading this morning, which I'll, I'll refer back to. But Chris Bronze, I have a quote here from him. He wrote the book called Unpacking Forgiveness. He says, Forgiveness is a commitment by the offended party to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. I'll say it again. Forgiveness is a commitment by the offended party to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. We looked at 2 Samuel chapter 7, or chapter 12, verse 7, where David gave that famous statement, or Nathan said to David, in view of the sin that he committed with Bathsheba and against Uriah, you are the man, right? You are the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, and I'm going to read this quickly, I anointed you the king, I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into thy bosom, gave you all the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto you these such and such things. God was so gracious to him. So gracious to him. But then he says, and I'm going to start going through this slowly now in verse 9 of Second Samuel 12. Why then have you despised the commandment of the Lord? Sin. To do evil in his sight, you killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Sin. You took his wife to be your wife. Sin. You slayed him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword will not depart from your house. Consequence. Because you have despised me and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own house. Consequence. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. Consequence. He will lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Consequence. 
For thou did it secretly, but I will do it before all of Israel and before the Son. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. There's the confession. I am the man. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord hath put away your sin. Forgiveness. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You will not die. Mercy is granted. However, because by this deed you have done such a great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child that is born unto you will surely die. Consequence. God forgave the sin of David. A great sin. More than one. But not without severe consequences that followed him the rest of his life. So what is therapeutic forgiveness? Therapeutic forgiveness came into Christianity through the influence of pop psychology. A lot of garbage has come into Christianity through the influence of pop psychology. But people are encouraged to forgive other people who sinned against them for, their, for the sake of their own mental health, peace of mind. You saw the shootings in Ovadi, Texas, a massacre. The little children in school, not the first, won't be the last probably. You saw what happened in that supermarket in Buffalo. And sometimes when these things happen, you'll hear somebody go up and afterwards, and even though the, well, the Ovaldi shooter took his life, no repentance, and the, the Buffalo shooter's still alive, you know, no repentance. But even though those people, those, those evil people did not repent, you'll hear people sometimes say, well, I, I forgive them. I forgive them. That's self-therapy. It's not for them who say, and I forgive them. Right? It's, they're not, they can't possibly forgive them. There's no repentance. There's no ground for forgiveness. So they're doing it as a means of, of self-therapy, letting this go. So the definitions may vary, but generally speaking, it is a ceasing to feel resentment or anger over an offense or perceived offense, irrespective of the offender's actions. And that's the key thought. Now, Robert Enright says, Forgiveness is a willingness to abandon one's right to resentment, negative judgment, and indifferent behavior toward one who unjustly injured us while fostering undeserved qualities of compassion, generosity, and even love toward them. Sounds good, right? But it's, but it's wrong because of what it doesn't do. It's incomplete. And that's the problem with therapeutic forgiveness. It's incomplete. Because it fails to follow the biblical model that divine forgiveness hopes for and opens a pathway to moral reform, real change of behavior, and relational restoration dependent upon repentance. I'll say it again. Therapeutic forgiveness and this idea of, you know, I'm doing this for my own sake, fails to follow the biblical model that divine forgiveness hopes for and opens a pathway to moral reform, real change, 
and relational restoration dependent upon repentance. Now, some people who advocate this type of forgiveness, and why not, right? They'll go so far as to say, you must forgive God if you feel that he's wronged you. And that's out there in Christian literature. And you, you must forgive yourself for the hurts that you did to yourself. Lewis Smedes was a big advocate of this. He wrote a national bestseller on forgiveness. There's a little picture of the book I think we have up there. Healing the hurt we don't deserve. Now, a lot of hurts we don't deserve, and I'm sure there's a lot of good things that he wrote in that book. But here's what he says. When you release the wrongdoer from the wrong, you cut a malignant tumor out of your inner life. You set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. That's therapeutic forgiveness. He said forgiveness was God's invention of coming to terms in a world where people are unfair to each other and hurt each other deeply. He began by forgiving us, and he invites us all to forgive each other without any qualifications, unconditionally. Smead says this, forgiveness, and here's an error, forgiveness is a private matter. That means shutting down anger, bitterness, and repentance. And resentment. In other words, Christians should forgive automatically. Automatically. Just forgive, forget, and I'll give you a great big hug, even if you don't want it. Now, because therapeutic forgiveness is based on feelings and not the scripture, just as I said, many people think that they have to forgive God of the things that they feel. That, that he's wronged them for. They, did, they didn't deserve, God, I didn't deserve this, that, or the other thing. That's Dr. Phil's theology. That's not biblical at all. So I want to put a little chart up that Bronze used in his book, Unpacking Forgiveness, and, and you could see it here. You see a little bit of difference, and we'll get into these with, with real examples as we go along. Therapeutic forgiveness, biblical forgiveness. Therapeutic forgiveness is a feeling It is ceasing to feel resentment or bitterness. It's self-therapy is what it is. Biblical forgiveness is a commitment to pardon the offender. You're always ready to do that. And I'll talk about what to do when they don't want to repent and how we should respond. Therapeutic forgiveness is private. It's private or individual. It's me doing something for myself, for my own good. Biblical forgiveness, on the other hand, is something that happens between two parties. Why? Because we'll see. We'll see in a minute. Therapeutic forgiveness is unconditional. And that sounds wonderful. Biblical forgiveness, on the other hand, is conditioned upon what? Repentance. Primarily motivated by self-interest or self-therapy. This is good for me, although it may not do anything for the person who committed the injustice. It's about me. Motivated by love for neighbors and love for God, it is for God's glory and joy when true forgiveness is demonstrated. Now here's the key thing. In therapeutic forgiveness model, 
A standard of justice is not critical. It is about how you feel. You can forgive someone who has not done anything wrong because you feel you have been wronged. And that's why I say the Bible has to be the basis for truth, not our feelings. Our feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. Deceiving. You cannot legitimately forgive someone if they haven't done anything wrong to you according to God's standards. So this is where it gets messy. Because some people could say, oh no, you offended me. No, you offended me. And then we have to try to sort that out as best we can biblically. This is a key point. Therapeutic forgiveness happens without reconciliation. Right? Between the two parties. What's God's goal in forgiving us? To reconcile us back to Him. So now it's a healthy relationship again. There can, there can come fruit out of that relationship. But unless the repentance takes place, it can't happen. Reconciliation can't happen. But biblical forgiveness is inextricably linked to reconciliation. So where you find true forgiveness in the Scripture, you have reconciliation. And Christ provided the grounds for that, right? God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And then he says, be ye reconciled to God. That's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, there still could be consequences, you know, on the human level. But between God, it's a beautiful thing. When God forgives, there is always reconciliation. Baker's Dictionary defines reconciliation and says it involves a change in the relationship between God and man or man and man. It assumes that there has been a breakdown in the relationship. That's what sin does. It breaks down relationships. But now there has been a change from a state of enmity, hardness, feelings, whatever, fragmentation, to one of harmony and fellowship. That's biblical reconciliation. Now, what's the real problem with therapeutic forgiveness? It it fails to confront sin. It fails to confront sin. Matthew 18, 15 says, Moreover, if your brother will trespass against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, go with two or three. That in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. If he neglects to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglects to hear the church, then treat him like a heathen and a publican, an unbeliever, if they refuse to reconcile. When confronted with what would be sin, as God's word defines sin. Now, that's very important. The confrontation, as hard as it is. It's important because sin in a person's life or, or in a church does not stay idle. It often takes on a life of its own. And you've seen that happen in the workplace, in the home, wherever. And that's why the Bible says in Galatians 5, 9, a little leaveneth what? 
leavens the whole lump. It has a corrupting influence that goes outside the small little circle and it begins to destroy and erode many relationships. Many. And this is why Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.16, Shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. That's the leaven leavening the whole lump. And the word will eat like a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and have overthrown the faith of some. Listen, Paul, man, Paul received the grace of God in a marvelous way, didn't he, in forgiveness? Undeserved. He called himself the chief of sinners, the worst of sinners. He knew what the grace of God was. But he didn't just go out and blanket, you know, give people blanket pardons. Oh, I forgive you, and you know, I've been forgiven, I forgive you, and so forth. No, he always preached the ground of biblical forgiveness, which was repentance. So biblical love requires loving confrontation at times. We just can't always overlook an offense. Sometimes it is a glory to overlook an offense. And as I said, love covers a multitude of sins. But some sins are so grievous, you cannot do that with. You can't do it. That's why Paul told the Galatians, when Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to his face. You know what that means? I got right in his face. It was between him and me at that point. I confronted him. That's a confrontation. Because he was to be blamed. He was guilty. For before certain from men from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he, drew, he drew, withdrew and separated himself, fearing them of the circumcision. So, so really, in a sense, he was compromising the gospel at that point. Galatians 6.2, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual. And really, remember, the first thing is, you know, cast the log out of what? Your own, your own eye first. Recognize your own weakness. Recognize your own sins. But you who are spiritual. Restore such a one in spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be, be tempted. Biblical forgiveness means we must offer forgiveness to those who have offended us and be ever ready to forgive them if they acknowledge their sin. If they acknowledge their sin. Luke 17, 3, take heed to yourselves. If your brother trespass against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he trespasses against you seven times in a day, that's what the Jews put the limit on, and seven times in a day turns again to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Jesus says, you'd, when Peter questioned him about this, he says, not just seven times, but seven times, 70 times. So he's using you know, definite hyperbole, an exaggeration to, to emphasize the, the point, not the number of times a person would, because obviously someone you know, comes 1,490 times you know, seeking forgiveness, something is wrong. But the point is that you must be ever ready to forgive. So stop, guard your hearts right now. Who's hurt you? Who's hurt me? Are you ready to forgive them? If they come to you and say, 
I have sinned against you. I'm sorry. Then you must, you must be, grant forgiveness to them. So you say, well, what do, you, what, are the, what do we do? And we'll get into this more if they don't. Well, number one, you, you, like I said, you've got to be ready to forgive. So that's a constant guarding of the heart. Because if you don't, you will get bitter. Secondly, you need to be proactive in, in love. Now, that doesn't mean you go around hugging, hugging everybody and telling all the people who've offended you or have caused offense in the church and say, oh, I love you and so forth and so on. But it means you're, you're ever ready to, to, to show love toward those people. If, if they're hurting in their life, you don't just treat them as outcasts. You know, you do what you can to try to show the love toward them. The third thing is you cannot seek revenge, Right? Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Well, what if they don't do anything? What if they still don't respond to anything? Well, you know what Paul said? Alexander the coppersmith has done me great harm. Sinned against me. The Lord repay him. You leave room for the wrath of God. That sounds terrible. The judgment of God on the unrepentant. That's exactly what Paul did. Alexander the coppersmith has done me great harm. May the Lord repay him. Not you. That's vengeance. But you pray that that won't happen. You pray that they will change their mind and their heart and be willing to be reconciled. Because that's what honors God. Now a Christian who is not willing to forgive, a Christian who's going to set up their own standards of I'll forgive you if you do this, this, or this. That person can be filled with bitterness. That person is dwelling on the events, on the offense. That person even could, if he, if he lets that root of bitterness go on, could even wish revenge on that people, those, those people. No, you've got to leave it to God. People who have obtained mercy are characterized by a heart attitude that is merciful and desires reconciliation. Oh, they're always ready and willing to forgive someone when they repent. And, you know, Jesus said in Luke 6.35, love your enemies. What? I mean, how do we do that? That's a hard command, Right? Love your enemies, do good, lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward will be great, and you will be the children of highest, for he is kind unto the, to the unthankful and to the evil. Now, what's he saying? We are to be second-mile Christians, right? We are to be willing to go the second mile, to give the coat as well as the cloak, to turn the right cheek or left cheek as well as, you know, after they slap us on the right cheek, because we're ready to forgive, and, and, and our demonstrations of love or mercy are designed to win them to repentance. When God says that he was kind to the unthankful and to the evil, yes, he sends his rain on the just and the unjust. But does that mean that he's blind to the evil? And that he, that he issues a blanket pardon to the evil things that people do? No, even while he's bestowing good on them. He's holding them accountable for their sin. And if they don't repent, Jesus says, you will all likewise perish. Or is it John the Baptist? 
So I'll close with this, Ephesians 4.30. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby he has sealed you into the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind one to another. You know what our country needs? A lot of kindness. It's filled with anger. From both sides, the right and the left, be tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. There's that, that readiness, that, that always willing to forgive. What if they don't admit their sin? What if they don't repent of their sin? What if they see you as the offender? Which means they're blind to it. Well, I could give you a whole lot of questions like that. Those are tough questions. But the scripture does give us guidance. It hasn't left us to pop psychology to figure this out. It hasn't left, left us to group consensus. Well, what do you think is right? It hasn't left us to ourselves to figure it out, it's given guidance in the word of God as to what we are to do. But I will say this, when we figure it out, it's not always easy to do. And I have to say this, because you know this from experience, it does not always turn out the way we want it to. Some relationships will never be repaired. We have to admit that. But we have to do our part in praying, in having that ready state of mind, guarding our own hearts lest we become bitter, revengeful, going the extra mile if necessary, not seeking revenge, committing everything to the justice of God. Listen, there are people I can't change. You know that too, right? God can change people. And that's why we have to blanket everything in prayer. Listen, there have been people who've offended me. I'm not going to lie to you. There are people who said some awful things, people who've left this church and written some awful things. And sometimes at night I wake up and I say, God, turn their hearts. Change their hearts. Help them to see things they're not seeing. And help me to see the things that I need to see. We'll get more into it, right? We'll give some real, real good concrete examples from Scripture and try to look into some of the exegesis of Scripture. And, and because a lot of times people will take a verse and they'll run with it. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And we'll say, well, there it is. Jesus forgave even his enemies. Blanket forgiveness. Did he really? Were they pardoned of all their sins? Those are the tough type of things we'll look at.